This is the inimitable Mary Mosin visiting us from uh, Vallejo, and she trained for many years at uh, both uh, San Francisco Zen Center and at the Berkeley Zen Center, and uh, spent four years at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center in the early 1990s, and uh, is uh, a student of the late uh, Sojin Mel Weitzman and received Dharma transmission from him. And I would like to add that Mary is about to retire as uh, as the uh, longtime, well, this, as the founder and uh, longtime teacher at uh, Baleo Zen Center. Uh, we don't know exactly what this means, but uh, I think she she has said um, she's not going to disappear, and we hope that's true. Um, and uh, maybe we'll have some formal occasion in the future to uh, acknowledge all of her contributions to uh, this sangha, and well, of course, especially her home sangha in Malaya. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. We'll, we'll see. Somebody asked me the other day about is there going to be a stepping down ceremony? But formally, I am the abbot, but it always strikes me a little odd with these tiny places that are not. You know, we, we had, when I was, did a mountain seat ceremony, we actually had a resident besides me, but we really am not a residential place. So I call myself the guiding teacher mostly, but that is my formal title. And uh, when an abbot leaves there formally there is something called a stepping down ceremony so we may have that um, and I've told my board that I want a big going I want a uh, I want a retirement party <laughs> even though I'm not entirely retired and I'll always be available to you guys you know as long as I'm able just I keep saying as long as I don't have to organize it or supervise it or think about that stuff you know, you organize it and collect the money or keep lists or do whatever needs to be done, you do it. I just show up and teach, it's fine. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We're, we're sort of feeling our way along. So I said before we started the formal part of this that I was, I was wanting to kind of try an experiment and ask you and the, the people online are certainly included in this. Uh, you know, what do you have some some question that you've always kind of wondered about but never thought to ask? I mean, it took me a long time to. I don't know if I asked or I found out about the um, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, um, and I was kind of you. Know, I'd say it in the meal chant, and I'd kind of think, what? And then by the time we finished the meal chant. And we ate breakfast or whatever, you know, I completely forgot. So I never actually thought to, to ask anybody, what, what is that? So I'm asking. I'm inviting. Who are the four benefactors? Oh, God. <laughs> Tell me, who are you talking about? I, I'm not sure. The four benefactors is something in the Zen Center way of describing things. In the first portion, I mean, the second or the third. Oh, the, the first portion is to avoid all evil. The second is to do all good. The third is to save all beings. No, the first portion. It's for our, 
It's, yeah, okay, it's right. It's the meal chance. Yeah, yeah, right. No, the first portion is for our teachers. The second is for our parents, I think. You know, it's like I can do it innumerable labels. We eat this food to awaken with everyone. The first portion, no. No. This food, how it say? Teachers, family, no, I don't, and all people, and for all beings in the six worlds. Yes? What, do you, what about them? I mean, those seem pretty self-explanatory to me. Do you have a question about it? Okay, I'm trying to remember, too, at what point. You, you put the spoon into the Buddha bowl, you put the chopsticks into the next bowl, right. and then the next one is for the four benefactors. I don't, know I don't think of it that way. I mean, I've never been taught it that way. I mean, during... No, the, the, first, the four benefactors come before you pick up this. Okay. Okay, Jim, go for it. No, no, that's this a, is completely lost. Yeah, this is very. This is really in the weeds here. I'll, I'll let it go. No. Okay, uh, because actually you do put the utensils out during those. You, the, this food, the, uh, this food is to awaken. We eat to support the Buddha and to practice. We eat to support life and to practice the way of Buddha. Boom. This food is for the three treasures, for our teachers, family, and all people, and for all beings in the six worlds. The first portion, and then you pick up your book bowl. But during the middle one, that is when you put the utensils in. Maybe, uh, as I recall, uh, Green Gulch, uh, it's a little different than what you just said, and it sounded like maybe you uh, specified what the four benefactors are. Parents and a few other folks. Yeah, here. well, that that may I, we do it the, the old-fashioned way. The San Francisco Zen Center had well, it wasn't just they, but there was this committee that that went through all the liturgy and and retranslated it. And it, when you do translation by committee, it can get kind of clunky. And uh, so. I mostly don't. We don't. Our, our, my version that we use of the Heart Sutra is a little different, and uh, we use an old version of the uh, All Buddhas. We don't say Honored Ones. We say All Beings because I I like that. Reminding myself that all beings are Buddha, and I don't know anyway. But this is kind of weedy. I think I don't know how many people here actually eat oriyoki or do this kind of stuff. I don't know. Yeah. For the for the recording, yeah. I think you do. Yeah. yeah. Here it is. Oh, here it is. Thank you for the folks on I'm taking a poll of various teachers. Yeah. This this hits me personally. Um, there's a line from one of the sutras. I can't remember which. Uh, uh, just to depict it in literary terms, form is to defile it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not to reify things. Um, and I have been known uh, to make utterances about, you know, my practice. And I've been, you know, kindly chastised. Uh, and, and then I think I've heard Reb say what the standard, the standard response to that is uh, it cannot be defiled, so why mention it? And to me... 
it's like completely, if it can't be defiled, why, what's the harm in mentioning it? <laughs> so could you help clarify my confusion? Well, well there, I don't think there's like an answer. It's, it's good to be reminded that to just to speak of it in literary terms is to subject it to devilement, I think maybe, but at any rate, same thing. Um, and Reb may have said that. I'm sure he did. And you may have noticed that Reb uh, subjects it to defilement all the time, right? He talks. We say that, oh, you know, opening your mouth is making a mistake on purpose. <laughs> and uh, years ago, uh, I was pretty new to practice, and I was having, I think it was Doksan with Norman Fisher, and he said something about sometimes I make a mistake on purpose. And I didn't ask him about it at the time. I don't know that I ever told him this. But I thought, gee, how arrogant. My God, don't you make enough mistakes without trying? (laughs) (laughs) But, of course, he was quoting that line, but I didn't, I hadn't heard that line yet. So, you know, every time you open your mouth, you're discriminating. And it's good to be reminded to not hold on to it too tight. But, of course, Dogen famously talks all the time about uh, language. And, and uh, you know, he, uh, Mel used to say, you know, don't get confused between, uh, you know, the, the, the finger pointing at the moon. It's the moon. It's not the finger, but we get distracted by the finger. But, but you know, Dogen says you need that. You need... You need language. It's what is it? A painted rice cake? I think it's. I think that's the right. Anyway, that it's called, or painted rice. It's painted rice cake fascicle. And he talks a lot about how we need language. We need language. We need it, and it does. Of course, it subjects it to defilement. And of course, it can't be defiled because it's just there, daring. It ising, is ising, or whatever. So there's no way. But on a more relative level, of course you can defile it. And of course you make mistakes. And that helps keep us humble, I guess. You know, it helps, as I said, I mean, Uchiyama says opening the hand of thought that we don't hold on to our thoughts so much because it, it helps to kind of to open the hand. So I, and I, I appreciate your words. I want to be a little more... You know, so you know where I'm coming from is sometimes in practice we have direct experience. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it doesn't mean much. It's just a direct experience. That's that. And sometimes you feel like I've had certain insight here. Uh Not not that we're grasping or holding on to it, but we want to share it with somebody else. And at that point in time, I've been told by several people, eh, that's kind of frowned on. Yeah, that is, it is, it is especially here, and I, I don't know if it's just Suzuki Roshi lineage or not, uh, and, and I think too, when you talk about it, about one of those experiences, um, I'm trying to think of a good word to use. I mean, you defile it a little bit, you cheapen it a little bit, and and I think uh, 
you can feel it in your heart. And uh, just recently, I got interviewed by oh God, what is his name? I think his name is McNeil. I think it's Rick McNeil. I don't remember because that happens every so often. Somebody calls me, and uh, I told him. I don't know. I didn't tell him about an enlightenment experience, but I referred to it somehow. And then he wanted to hear about it. And uh, I told him off the record, I told him a short version. And as I did, or and after I did, and now as I speak about it, it doesn't feel good to me. You know? And, uh, um, you know, I, I get to go over it the transcript, and if it's in there, I get to cut it out. But uh, there is something that that does. Uh, it isn't that you shouldn't tell your teacher about it, you know. And uh, maybe you know, maybe a really close Dharma friend, but not a lot, not a lot, and. Uh, because I did t- talk about such things with somebody, and I don't feel bad about it, but it was somebody It was, uh, I don't know if you, Gyokuko Carlson, she was long-time co-abbot of the, uh, of the uh, Dharma Reigns Center in Portland. A wonderful, wonderful teacher, but she's also a friend of mine. And I was drove up the coast, and, and she came out from Portland and joined me, and we had this uh, cabin overlooking the water. And... Um, we had some drink, and 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 we had a really sweet conversation about such things. So sometimes, you know, you 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 have a friend, and you you deepen the friendship by telling your secrets. That was kind of like it, and I feel fine about that. I mean, I don't know if she remembers, <laughs> but at any rate, that's very unusual, and it, and I don't. It feels fine to me. It doesn't have to do with the drink. The drink just the drink loosened our tongues. I don't either. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't either for a lot of things. But anyway, I think it's something to hold very carefully, very carefully, and you can feel it in your body when you're when you're um, you're sort of. These words are a little too big. I don't. Maybe they're not. Anyway, kind of defiling yourself, you know, or you're. It it feels like a wrench inside somewhere, and it feels like no, this is. This is too much. You know, I would say sometimes it should be, practice should be a stretch, but not a wrench. You know? So, trust your body. I I appreciate your thoughts on that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You haven't spoken about it. Substantively. I had had a funny experience about that. I had a kind of... um, long time ago kind of you know awakening experience and i've i've never i've never talked about it to anybody but um you know there's an impulse to want to tell somebody so so earlier at the very earlier this year i was in uh the netherlands and i was invited to give a talk to a group of people there and I thought, I'm far enough away now, I can tell these people about this experience and it'll be okay. <laughs> and I told the experience that it was the first time I'd ever expressed it. And 
And even my wife was there and she said, I never heard that before. <laughs> and she was right because I never, I never expressed it. And I felt, and I, it didn't bother me there, you know, somehow. It was, it seemed okay. But I, w- I wouldn't do it this close to home. Right? <laughs> well, I hope you told Reb about it. Uh, no. Uh-uh. Any time. <laughs> it's never too late. Uh, we'll see. Well, you know, I, one of the things I noticed, the uh, first uh, big one that I had, I noticed that I, I happened to have Doksan with, uh, with Mel like the next day or a couple of days later. And so I told him about it. But I, when I realized looking back, I had no need to tell him. I had no need to tell. I, just, I told him because, you know, he's my teacher and I'm in Doksan, so that's tell him. But, but I didn't go chasing after him to tell him. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's big. Uh, and then about a week later, I made an appointment to talk to Blanche and I made an appointment to talk to Norman and I told them about it. And I did have a need to tell, you know, I, I wanted to tell them. So that was interesting to sort of fade it. <laughs> Anything else you could, yes? Oh, you. Just about language. Um, you, need, you do need, I think we need to use the mic because, because for the recording and the people online. Yeah, I know my voice is soft. Um, just about language and uh, the importance of language, and I, I guess I notice that, you know, like I'll be chanting something, for example, and then certain word, a word will just sort of like ripple through my whole body, mm-hmm. like it's resonating. Mm-hmm. It's not something I'm thinking about exactly. Um, and I don't even know exactly w- what happens with it, except that something seems to open. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Yes, that happens, <laughs> and sometimes a phrase. Yeah, a phrase. Mm-hmm. And uh, and sometimes a phrase will uh, just spontaneously come up in some other context, mm-hmm. you know, and it just um, it just arises. I'm trying the things that are coming to me is like to study the Buddha ways to study self, but that's so common. But there are other things. Yeah. Yeah. And images also. Yes, and and oh, chanting opens our hearts. I, I don't know if you folks have had the experience, it's common, that uh, if you, you're grieving, you lost somebody close, and then you are at a center or temple or whatever, and they do a, a dedicate service for you for about to that person, and uh, you've been talking before the sitting, and you've been fine, and as soon as you start chanting the Daishindarani, you start crying. And there's just there's something about it that it chanting opens your heart. That's why whenever when I do a funeral or memorial, I make sure that before we open it up to people commenting, that we chant something, anything, that that we chant something together, and then it helps people, I think, to open their hearts. Let's, is there somebody who is relatively newer that? Has something to ask? I don't. I don't recognize. I recognize most of you, and I don't recognize everybody. So I don't know who's new or not new or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're just smiling at me. Are you? Are you holding back something you want to ask about? No, just you're mentioning being new and very new <laughs> today. <laughs> what in the world are you people talking about? <laughs> what is this Hazen stuff? You, get, you don't. You don't have to ask. But I just want you to feel welcome. A lot of times, 
we have this question and we think, oh, this is a really dumb question. And then when you ask it, it turns out that half the room was wondering the same thing. There might be a question online. I just saw a bubble come oh. up. Oh, there's a yeah. hand. Uh, Susan. Susan Fry at the top. Oh, yes. Susan. Hi. Not anymore. Um, I was wondering why the chants need to be done in such staccato, monotone, no inflection, no, you know, how, how the chants are done. Why, why are they done in such a way? And I will say that um, I was, I've, I've spent some time at an abbey, um, a Tibetan Buddhist abbey uh, called uh, uh, in, in Washington and the chants that they do, they do exactly the same way. So I, I recognize that it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a monastic thing, or at least it appears to me to be a monastic um, tradition, but why, 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 why no inflection? Why no even stopping at the end of sentences that's a big that's a big question, and uh, I have strong feelings about it, as some of the people here know. I'm not a fan of uh, chanting with a makugio. I think I mean in English, because I think it makes you sound dumb. Sounds to me like uh, bad poetry poor, poorly recited from junior high. <laughs> However, I have stopped making fun of it when I chant with people like here, which is a big step for me (laughs) because it's really none of my business and it's just somebody's idea of beauty. And I think I I don't, I like chanting with no punctuation and I'm not, I know, I know why I think it's useful. I don't, I don't, I don't know. where all it comes from here. You know, in, in Japan, Japanese lends itself to chanting with a makugyo because it's short uh, syllables and, uh, and it's not so much accented. You know, so, uh, you know, there's a word, we use the word differ and it's not differ, it's differ. And when we chant with a makugyo, the, the accent can sometimes got falls in weird places. But at any rate, in in Japanese, it works much better. So why we started doing it, I don't know. When I came into it, it was before the makugyo was used for English anywhere that I know of. Um, But at any rate, uh, there was this chanting with no punctuation. And for me, it helps... um, it helps the chanting go to my heart and it helps me let the meaning wash over me, wash through me, come to me without my thinking about it. And and uh, as we were just talking about it, you know, for me, you know, odd phrases come up or, or one thing that's interesting sometimes, it happens less now, but it used to be that we'd be chanting something longer, like say the Genjo Koan or the um, 
Song of the Jewel Mirror Samani, you know, and some some phrase would really strike me, and I'd want to go back. I want to hear it. I want to hear more of it, or I want to hear it again, or I want to wait. I want to think about that, and I couldn't because it was like this stream flowing over pebbles. It was just going, and I had to go with it. I mean, I could have shut up and tried to think about it, but that probably would have been impossible. And it seems like a useful thing to not get so caught up in the words and let the meaning come to you as it does. So that's, I like it. Um, but uh, the why, as Reb says, I don't answer why questions. I don't know why. Um, it may be because of that. It may well be because of that, that it's, that it helps us not get so entangled, but I don't really know. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Mary, I was just thinking, because I was raised in the Catholic tradition, uh, when we still did Latin, and I, we did lots of Gregorian chant, which was very, very similar. Yeah. Very, very similar. So I think there's something in religious traditions and in religious ceremonies that it takes you out of ordinary speech. This is sacred speech, and it's a, it's a, sac- it's a sacred ritual. Yeah. And I think that is part of getting you out of your everyday place into another place. Yes. I think that's really right. And I think of chanting as singing on one note. But that singing, that is part of what opens you up in some way. And it's a different part of our brain that is activated when, with, in music hearing than, than in the logical speech. So uh, again, you're, you're, you're tapping in physiologically or neurologically uh-huh. into a different part of your body, yeah. body, body mind. Yes, yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a, maybe it's a, it's a much more of a body thing. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, the chant lives in our bodies. Yeah. So that it comes up at moments unexpectedly. Yes, Mr. Kokyo? You say it. Because that's exactly what I was No, well, you should say it because she's been talking, Dorley's been talking a lot. Nobody's ever said that about me. Oh, is that right? <laughs> well, I appreciate it. It's really interesting, but I just thought that you know he was he was advocating. Did you see that? Oscar was ab- abdicating. He was saying, "Oh, you were going to say exactly what I was going to say." She, she, she actually did preempt my thought. It's no problem. Oh, she didn't know. You didn't know. And my thought was, uh, it's happened many times to me that in some meditation or just situation, a phrase would um, would come to me from the liturgy mm-hmm. that explained. It was like someone, you know, said, "Oh, here, <laughs> this is what," I'm... and oh, and so it explained whatever was in my head, and it opened up the phrase, oh, that's what it means. Mm-hmm. And I think that that happens because 
just as you were saying, that repetition of, of, the, of the flow put it in my mind free of any stories about it so it was available uh-huh. uh, for retrieval just when it, when it was triggered. I think that's I think that's true, and um, this is in the weeds. I don't know. The, there's there's something called the alaya, the storehouse consciousness, and this is Buddhist psychology. So don't worry about it. But at any rate, there is the alaya, and it's uh, sometimes described. There's it's 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 boundless. And flowing, and there's really no point in talking about it, but we talk about it anyway. And and we have to talk about it as if it had boundaries, because how else can you? Anyway, there's it, it's it's called the storehouse consciousness, and there are seeds that represent all of your experiences that arise out of karmic consequences, and um, and it includes somehow the sort of collective experience of which you are the heir in your family and so on. And so it seems to me that uh, that kind of experience is a ripening of something that's there. You know, just the way we say, and I say this, I often, you know, I lecture almost every week and so I don't always spend a lot of time preparing. But I have something, I usually have a text or something I want to talk about and uh, and what I say to myself is that I, I'm going to sleep on it. So I would say I'd read a poem the night before or whatever, read something, and I will let my alaya work on it. And you, it's not an uncommon experience that there's something that's troubling you, and you're wondering about, and you go to you go to sleep, and in the morning you say, oh, I see. And uh, there is. Some kind of some process that's uh, I don't know I don't know that I would call it subconscious or unconscious exactly but something like that yes and let me just ask let me let him bring up his and then but what time do we need to stop somewhere between now and nine <laughs> okay yeah so um, that brings up a, an actual question. <laughs> Um, uh, Dogen says um, uh, to study Buddhism is to study the self and uh, we also hear that there is no such thing as the self Um, but there is something and and our thoughts like my words right now are coming from somewhere although I don't know where that is. Um, so I'm getting close to the it of of which to speak is to stain with defilement, I think. But um, what? But it's occurred to me that maybe that's at the fringes of the alaya. You know, to the uh, the an ex, what I can like the outer boundary of the of the the boundary of my karmic consciousness and, and the alaya. Oh my 
Why is that? Because well, yeah, I don't know. Why? I know how. I know something about. Mel used to say, "I don't not why, but how." That the question should be how. And um, of course, you have a self. Of course, you are a self, and you don't, and you aren't. So you got this body and mind and karmic whatever formations that made you and the words come from somewhere and it does feel mysterious sometimes you're chanting and you're chanting the heart sutra and you know it and it's just coming and you're thinking i mean it occurs to me every so often where is this coming from i'm not thinking about the heart sutra it's just coming out it just it's, it's it seems weird to me so but, you know, we talk about the alaya as uh, part of the seven consciousnesses, Vasubandhu, 30 verses kind of stuff. And uh, it's the, uh, it's the field of seeds, I guess, among which the manas goes and picks and chooses which ones to uh, bring up to the light. And that process is where this sense of self comes from. It's the manas saying, wow, look what I did. I I noticed that that over there, separate from me, that's a book. Wow. I'm exaggerating. But that's that's the short version of how I understand it. But this is... It's too, it's too much for now. I mean, that's the short answer. I was just going to go back to the chanting because one of the I things have, I can't very close. Like that? Can you yeah. yeah. Okay. I was going to go back to the chanting because one of the things that I've been told is that a lot of the chants, particularly the ones that are done in Japanese, which there's a lot of those where I come from. Um, that a lot, some, quite a few of them go back to the Shinto religion and have roots there. And a, a lot of it is actually about the vibration that they create. So you don't even really have to know what they mean because just chanting them in Japanese is a thing in of itself. Um, although at, at a certain point, of course, one does want to know what, you're, what one's chanting and to have you know have a little deeper understanding of all this, but. Um, that's what I've been told. Yeah. Where, where do you come from? What do you, what we from the Rinzai tradition. I'm sorry? From the Rinzai tradition. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there's a Shinto influence on Buddhism in Japan and on Zen and so on. I don't know the most of the, the chants that I know of that we chant at all regularly are either you know Indian or we chant when somebody's died. Particularly, we chant something called the Daishindarani, the Great Compassionate Mind, and uh, we usually I've seen a translation and it's not very useful. And it's but it's said to be the what we chant is said to be a Japanese transliteration, which you know it's just you take the words and you try to make it sound Japanese, right? So it's a Japanese transliteration of a Chinese transliteration of Sanskrit. And it's sort of a magic spell, and it's supposed to be about the sounds. And um, and there is a translation, but it, it's not very attractive, I don't know. 
It's just sort of, please help, help, you're so wonderful. Um, it's it's uh, directed at, at uh, Avalokita Square or Kuan Yin. But at any rate, um, that's, you know, so that's from Sanskrit. And they, Enmei Juku Kanon Gyo is a Japanese poem. And uh, the Heart Sutra is probably Chinese. A lot of this stuff, you know, we don't, we don't really know. And uh, the uh, Fukan Zazenge and the, and the Genjo Koan are Dogen. And the merging of difference and unity is Chinese, early Chinese. And um, one of my, the Song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi is uh, Dungshan. Tozan. So I don't know how much of it comes from Shinto. But the, the you know, some of the format may well and whatever. And it is, it's a feeling of it somehow. And and the thing about what I often say about the Daishindarani is I don't really care what the words are. You know, they say it's the sound. And okay, but I say, my experience is that over the years, I and we have given it meaning. It To me, it means sending my heart out when somebody has died. And it means my receiving myself. You know, when it's somebody that I care about has died, I'm receiving the hearts of the people that are chanting with me. And all the people that I've chanted it with over the years. I mean, at Tassahara, you chanted every evening at evening service. And it's that's not uncommon. So I don't know how many times I've chanted it. But... All of that is part of me. Right? So when 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 I chanted at a memorial, that's what it is for me, and I give it that. I and we give it that meaning, and it. And you can call it vibrations. It's it's not a word I'm super comfortable with, but. But on the other hand, uh, I say a lot of things that, and I hear myself. I say, oh, that sort of Sarah, Sarah sounds woo woo. But it's just very practically true. You know, when you sit in a place where, uh, you sit in a dedicated place where people have been sitting, you can feel it. And when you join a group that's already been sitting, say you come into a session on the second day or something, um, you settle much more easily. You settle into, not exactly where the people are that have already been sitting for a whole day, but you settle into it. And um, what is that? It's something. Because, I mean, it just, it it absolutely happens. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't really care about why or something. I I enjoy it. Anything else? (laughs) So, in that case, I'm going to close with a poem that I love. And I, I tell you, uh, this is by uh, Jane Hirschfield, a longtime Zen practitioner and a wonderful person and a great poet. And uh, I... She likes to write things. She writes things that are kind of specific evocations, but she doesn't tell you exactly what it's about. I was at a a friend's party once, and Jane gave a presentation, and she said, let me tell you, I want to give you one of the poems I'm working on. I'm not quite done yet. 
And she read it and she said, so what was that about? And a couple of people said it was about Dawn. And she said, yeah, it is, but I don't want to make it obvious. (laughs) (laughs) So I will tell you that I am 99.9. She lives in Muir Beach. And I think, does she live at Green Gulch? But she practices around Green Gulch and she, she lives in the area and so on. I think this is about Green Gulch. And if you've ever been there when, because um, I want to just read it. I don't want to talk about it anymore after I read it. So I need to talk about it now. Uh, if you're there at night, going to the Zendo after dinner or going to the Zendo when it's dark in the morning, um, especially if you have to walk a little way. I lived in the uh, what's called the hiker's hut, so I had a little trek in the morning. Anyway, uh, everything is sort of often, because it's a foggy a lot, that everything is kind of dripping and you hear the owls. And it's magic. It's really wonderful. So I think this is about Green Gulch. And uh, you can tell me if you disappear, disagree, but you, I would be amazing, amazed if you did. So love amid owl cries. It is not the altar that matters, not that, nor the shape that is found there. The ghostly ideas come and go one after another, but the place endures, the fact that there is a door. It is not the altar that matters, not that, nor the shape that is found there. The ghostly ideas come and go one after another, but the place endures, the fact that there is a door.